And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show. It is Thursday, May 19th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law, a little switcheroo in the batting order for this week. Keith and I going on Thursday. Britt Eno and I going on Friday. That's how it works sometimes because we have the first installment of Keith's 2022 MLB mock draft. It's going to be available to you if you're a subscriber to The Athletic by the time you get to hear this podcast. So, uh, Keith, I think this is uh, an interesting exercise to observe from afar because I think a lot of us picture 30 Keiths, a lot of cloning happening here, running uh, each of the 30 teams, and drafting against each other. And that's not quite what this is in terms of the exercise at hand. This is, so I say, try to say this in the intro too, we're two months out from the draft. Nobody really knows who they're taking. The top few teams in the mock have some idea, but, and there are rumors, right? Such and such a team, they're not on this guy, they're more on this guy. We have some of that information, but we're way away from draft day. So, A, we don't have a lot of really good information, and B, also, like you were saying, like this this is, I'm just taking the best info I have. This is not, you know, I know a lot of people do these, and it's, this is who I would take at these picks. I mean, you can see from the start, I have the Orioles taking a player I've ranked like 23rd in the draft with the first pick. Clearly, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, we've dabbled a little bit in draft talk the last couple of episodes we've done. And I was surprised when I opened up the mock and saw Jacob Barry out of LSU going to the Orioles at 1-1. Because in our previous conversations about the top players available in this draft class, I don't think you mentioned his name in either of those conversations. Clearly, we've seen teams do this before. It's about the combination of players you can get by spreading the bonus pool around. This seems weird in this instance, given that there are so many other viable alternatives that would make sense. It just seems weird to me. You, you and I talked about Drew Jones not necessarily being the the automatic 1-1 that you get sometimes. You know, the Bryce Harper, Steven Strasburg years, those were layup no-brainers. Anybody in that position would have taken those players. Even still, taking Jacob Berry and passing on Drew Jones does not work, or even passing on Brooks Lee, who I think you had in the write-up as maybe the most logical alternative if the Orioles go a different direction. Yeah, that's what I think. If if the Orioles have decided for whatever reason we're only taking a college player, it would probably be Brooks Lee. I think he's the best option. He's the shortstop at Cal Poly. He was a maybe back of the first round, high second round talent out of high school, um, but was not signable. Uh, he was going to go play for his dad at Cal Poly. He's had a great career there. He is very difficult to strike out. Uh, it's not the most orthodox swing, and he's not terribly tooled up, but it's pretty clear he can put the bat on the ball and make good enough quality contact that no one seems to be worried about the hit tool at all. Um, 
probably be average power and he's going to play second or third. He's not going to play shortstop. I don't think he's agile enough for shortstop. His hands are really good. He's a high IQ baseball player. He's what you'd expect from a coach's son. Doesn't always work out that way. But in this case, it did. He's very safe. And I don't mean that in a derogatory sense, but it's sort of, if you're going to pick first and you've decided you're going to go for a college player, you just got to take the best one. Now, with that, in this particular case, that's a guy who's not got a ton of ceiling, but a really, really high floor. You have a pretty high degree of confidence in what you're getting. The problem with that approach, and I should mention, I have them taking Jacob Berry because I've heard Berry and Lee are two guys they're kind of zeroing in on. Um, and I've heard very specifically that they do not feel like there's a clear 1-1 guy in this draft. They don't even feel as strongly about Drew Jones at being one as I do, which is fine. It's just a matter of opinion. Um, and I don't think Drew Jones is like Harper or Strasburg. But that they this may be like 2012 when Mike Elias was with the Astros and so was Sigma Dahl. And they were um, – they had a whole group of players. I think it was Correa, Buxton, Max Fried, Colin Moran and essentially said, here's our dollar figure. Who wants it? And Correa took it and that's why they ended up with him. They ended up with the best player in the draft class. It's hard to – and they got Lance McCullers Jr. in the bargain too. So I can't argue with that. In the case of Barry – my objection is really that he's – I think he's DH. I, I think there's no chance this guy is going to end up playing a position even competently. Um, but that said, like this is – we're two months out also. Like you don't want to overemphasize. They're not definitely going to take this guy. It's possible they'll get to draft day and say, yeah, we're just taking Drew Jones. Entirely possible. Um, this was a scenario that got bandied about and I felt more confident putting a college player with that first pick – then I did putting a high school player there and then also like just let it play out, right? When you put one of these together, you say, okay, if this player goes first, who does the team at two take? And then who does the team at three take, et cetera. And the ripple effect here um, of those picks produced something that at least made a lot of sense to me, which is not to say I think it's accurate. I, I feel like I'm going to say that 20 times in this podcast, but it's right. It, this, the, it, it's that I looked at this at the end and thought it made sense. I was actually standing with a national scout had a game last night at Coastal Carolina, and he, I showed him what I had, and he looked at it, and he said, yeah, this looks like the right names. It looks sensible. There's no, such, there's no such thing as being accurate in a mock draft two months out. I just wanted it to not look stupid. You've ticked that box for sure. I think the question with Barry would just be, in terms of his ceiling as a hitter, right? If you don't see a place he can play well defensively, he has to hit a lot to justify a pick, even in these circumstances. So what type of hitter do you project him to be? So I know a couple of people who think I had one scout tell me his club. Now he didn't say this was scouts analytics or, or both, maybe the combination of all that in the model, but they had Barry as the best pure hitter in the draft, just offense only regardless of position. So not defense, not positional value, nothing. They just said Barry is the number one bat in the draft. And I think that's why he's getting considered up there. I have a, pretty clear philosophy on players like this. This came up with Seth, Seth Beer. God, what is that? Four years ago now? That he was coming out of Clemson, which is funny because that's who I saw uh, the night before we recorded this. On Tuesday night, I watched Clemson lose 17-2. to So Clemson haters can rejoice in, in that. Go look at the box score of Clemson against Coastal Carolina. You'll probably get much joy from reading it. And the problem is if you're... Seth Beer is a good example of a guy who, who just performed in college. All he did was hit. And he got on base at a tremendous clip. And he got into pro ball and was like, oh, he's actually not that great of a hitter. 
He's fine. He's going to play in the big leagues, I think, for a while. But he's not a star. He may not even be an everyday player. Because if you're a DH only, there's kind of no floor, right? If you don't hit, you're nothing. You have no fallback at all. And if Barry doesn't hit like he's expected to hit, there's nothing there. And that is an unacceptable level of risk for me when you're talking about the number one pick in the draft. The number five pick in the draft, I still wouldn't take Barry up there. He may very well go up there. Uh, and I'll say the same thing on draft day. I'll say, I wouldn't have taken him there. And here's the reason why. It is much more about a philosophy and sort of the base rate of players like this with absolutely zero defensive value. I'm nervous about taking a guy who can only play first base. I better at least be really, really sure he can play first base to take him in the top, say, top half of the first round. Barry at one to the Orioles. Drew Jones going two to Arizona. Jackson Holiday, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, going third to Texas, and then Brooks Lee going fourth to Pittsburgh. I think the next player here at five, Kevin Parada, the catcher out of Georgia Tech, he's another name that hasn't come up yet on these pods. That's a surprising name to me as someone who goes into this with very fresh eyes every time we have these conversations. But what does he bring and how does he cut ahead of you know, Termar Johnson and Cam Collier and some of the other names that have come up on this show the last couple of weeks? Well, and you know, if the Orioles didn't have Adley Rutschman, I wonder if they would consider Parada at the first overall pick. And we always say you don't draft for need. Obviously, you don't consider who's already in the system. However, Adley Rutschman's going to debut in the majors in a couple of weeks. If they took Kevin Parada with the first pick in the draft, it's going to immediately raise the question of, okay, now what? Right? Adley Rutschman isn't moving. So what have you just have you just created a, a logjam here where Parada is permanently blocked? Um, in this, you know, has to go play in another organization. He is hitting 355, 444, 732 for Georgia Tech. He has 24 homers. He has walked one more time than he has struck out this year. Um, and he's doing all this as a draft eligible sophomore, too. It's only his second year at Georgia Tech. He is age eligible uh, to be drafted this year. He is, you know, he might be the the college player of the year. He might be the goal. Like if I had to vote on Golden Spikes right now, it might be him. I'd, I'd probably take a little bit more of a look at it. But a catcher who performs like this, he's not a great defensive catcher by any means. But he's going to stay at the position and he hits and he gets on base and he has power. That's pretty good. And he probably deserves to go somewhere in the top five or six picks. I don't think he gets much farther than that. I really, really doubt he ends up going first overall just because of that. You, there's not you take away enough of his value by moving him off the position that if I'm the Orioles, I'd have to really believe Parada was 20% better than any other player in the draft to say I'm going to take him anyway, despite the fact that we think we have our catcher of the future in, in Rutschman. And if they took him, I wouldn't criticize it necessarily, but I think you it, it's one of the rare situations where you could say, yeah, we're not going to double up on catchers. You might double up on shortstops. You might double up on true center fielders. The catchers, because you lose so much value moving a player out from behind the position, I think I think Parada doesn't go first. I really don't think he goes second. I think Arizona's taking one of the high school kids. If Drew Jones gets there, they'll be popping champagne in the desert. And then Parada's market probably starts maybe at three. And then you're looking like four, five, six. I don't think he even gets much further than that. He may just stop at Washington. That may be their guy. Yeah, rounding out the top 10, Tamar Johnson to Miami at six, Cam Collier to the Cubs at seven, Cole Young, a high school shortstop out of Pennsylvania going eight. I think that's another name we haven't discussed yet, so we'll get to him in just yeah, a moment. he's a riser. And then Elijah Green, who people have heard about for a few years, going ninth to the Royals. Jace Young, uh, the brother of Josh Young, 
out of Texas Tech going to Colorado at 10 in this mock. Another name that we have brought up before, but Cole Young among the big risers over the last few weeks since we started talking 2022 draft. Uh, what kind of ceiling does Young bring? And it's, I think, a pretty classic case of a cold weather high school kid who was seen a little bit last summer, but has been better this year. He has played well at the right times in front of the right people. Right? As there's as the weather warms up and scouts to scouts typically start the year in the south because those guys are playing earlier and the weather is warmer and work their way north. By this point, it is May 18th. Basically, all the high school baseball like in the deep south is done and has been done for a little while. Georgia, Texas, uh, Florida, those kids are almost all done. They might have like a random you know, uh, all-star event, but they're basically finished. Alabama, Mississippi, all those guys are done. Whereas Young is, I think he's still got a week or two left, and the bulk of his schedule was happening as those schools in the South were winding down. So scouts sort of just generally try to work their way north gradually over the course of the spring. And as that's gone on, Young has just continued to hit better and better. People believe he's going to stay at shortstop. People think he's really going to hit. They really like the swing. I have not seen him in person, um, which is sort of weird. He's You would think, right? He's just in Pennsylvania. I could bike into Pennsylvania. It's just the wrong side of the state, unfortunately. It's kind of harder to get. It's easier to get to like Nashville than it is to get to Pittsburgh, which is bizarre. But anyway, <laughs> not that I wouldn't go see him. I just had to make some choices here. Um, but on video, I will say I really like the swing. I get it. Um, he's going to be almost 19 at the draft. That's a little bit of a knock. And te- teams are always worried about the comp- caliber of competition that cold weather high school kids face. We had Austin Hendrick taken out of that part of Pennsylvania in the pandemic year, and he's just been not good in his pro career. Um, you know, I don't think that's a good reason not to take or to downgrade a player. This happened when Billy Rowell was a uh the ninth overall pick out of Southern New Jersey. And the next time we had a premium high school prospect out of Southern New Jersey, people were like, well, Billy Rowell didn't hit. So we don't want to make that mistake again. And that was Mike Trout. Billy Rowell. There's a a blast from the past. The name that I have not Mm -hmm. heard in at least five years. I don't hang out with that kind of crowd. So not a lot of Orioles fans in my circle. He's been out of baseball for probably closer to 10. So yes, that's, that makes sense. Been a little while. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. The other player type that I think is kind of interesting when you look at a mock is you start placing injured pitchers, Tommy John guys, because you're getting considerable ceiling. And I think it's a it's still a pretty high risk, high reward thing to do. But I get the sense that a lot of teams that are outside the top 10 are strongly considering it because there are so many injured pitchers right now. It's it's a mess. Mm -hmm. as We talked about a few weeks ago. How do you value players in this situation if you're in the middle or later part of the first round and that clear 
top group of talent starts to run out, are you comfortable allocating a mid to late first round pick on someone who's still several months away from even being able to pitch in a game situation again? So we've got, and for folks who just haven't heard us discuss this before, I think right now we're at eight players, pitchers who are on my top 100 who had at least a chance to go in the first round who are currently out with Tommy John surgery. Uh, six college and two high school. And there are others, too, who've had Tommy John. But these are just guys who had, you know, I believe would have had a chance to go in the first round had they been healthy. There is one guy who is in a separate category. That's Connor Prelip from Alabama, who's barely pitched in college, actually, because of the pandemic. And then in 2020 and then in 21, his elbow started bothering him. He only threw, I think, seven innings before finally shutting it down. He had Tommy John surgery last spring. So he is actually going to throw a bullpen um, for scouts and for media members. I will be there. I'm sure uh, some of my uh, peers with other sites will be there too uh, on Monday, the day before the SEC tournament. And that's going to be pretty big for him because I've joked it's his proof of life session. It's no, 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 he's fine. He's on a mound. Um, it's just going to be a, a live bullpen. But unlike all of the other Tommy John guys, we get to see him. Everybody else is, they've all had the surgery from October to as recently as a couple weeks ago in the case of Dylan Lesko. So Prelip has a pretty big advantage. I don't believe he's going to pitch anywhere in games before the draft. He's just going to do a couple of the of these bullpens and just show teams, yep, he's healthy. Yep, velocity's back. You can see what the mechanics look like. Have at it. And that's, it's not ideal. We still haven't scouted him this spring, but it's more information than we're going to get on a lot of these other guys, like guys like Peyton Pallet uh, from Arkansas, who was probably going to be a top 10 pick if he was healthy, uh, but he blew out in January, and so he didn't pitch at all this year. So nobody scouted him since last summer. Um, you know, with Prelip's case, nobody's actually scouted him since, pre- you know, prob- probably somebody saw him last spring, but there wasn't much to go on. But I think he has a pretty big advantage by the fact that, one, he's going to be able to come back and throw in front of scouts, so we'll get to you know, put a radar gun on him and see the mechanics and get, you know, uh, stack has type data on his uh, on his pitches. And none of the other guys will be able to do that post surgery. Also, you take him knowing probably going to pitch for one of your affiliates in August, right? He'll be able to work himself back up. Draft is July 17th, makes a couple of starts in August. Maybe he goes to fall league, depending on where his rehab and recovery is. But this guy's ready to roll by opening day next year. And that's probably not true for any of the other Tommy John guys. And that's why I've got him in my rankings much higher than the other ones. And in the mock, I've got him going probably in the top 15. And, you know, it depends a little bit on the workout. But I feel pretty good he's going to go somewhere in, let's say, 11 to 20 range that someone will do that. And we do have a lot of history of those Tommy John guys going as high as eight. Cal Quantrill was eight coming back off Tommy John. Jeff Hoffman, I think, went ninth um, not long after having Tommy John. Eric Fetty went in the teens. Um, I'm blanking. There's another one not that long ago. But in the, we've had Tommy John college guys go in the top 20. The interesting one, and who I do have going in the first round in this mock, is Dylan Lesko, who's a high school kid having Tommy John. We don't have very many of those who've ended up going in the first round. Um, Dax Fulton went in the second a couple years ago. It's probably the most recent comp of a guy who'd had Tommy John and was still drafted high. And he was paid, but the Marlins didn't use the first round pick on him. Dylan Lesko is a different story. He was headed for a top five pick for sure. And is one of the most impressive high school pitchers I've seen probably since Giolito came out um, that, you know, I think that if teams are comfortable with what they see from the doctors after he had the surgery, 
he'll still get something close to what he would have gotten, maybe not full price, uh, and that he'll still get, he'll be the no worse than the, let's say, second or third high school pitcher taken. Um, but he's a kind of an unusual case because he's so advanced. He's so polished and so advanced. His stuff was so good for a high school pitcher. I think the rest of the guys, and I won't go through every name, but you're going to see a lot of these guys be someone's second pick. We'll get to the sandwich round. We'll get to the second round. And teams will say, all right, we got one in the bank who's good, healthy player who goes plays right away. Now we'll go take one of these Tommy John guys. You pick your flavor. Whichever one you liked before they got hurt, that'll be the guy that they target. And I think we'll see at least three or four of them go off the board in the next 15 to 20 picks after the first round ends. Do you think part of the the difference in the willingness to go after the college pitcher who's had Tommy John versus the high school pitcher who's had Tommy John is the, the process for the rehab, while it's the same, it seems like there's more resources in place for a college kid who blows out his elbow by comparison, right? I mean, if you're in high school yeah. and you go through Tommy John surgery, you're rehabbing on your own with the physicians that your parents bring you to. That's kind of... It's not great. Right. So right? I think that probably has a lot to to shape the outcomes for those two different groups of pitchers. And there's a belief, and I don't know if this is supported by evidence, If it's, I don't know if it's contradicted by evidence, but that players who have Tommy John surgery as teenagers, thinking particularly as high school players, have worse long-term outcomes. I just don't know if that's true. Hmm. Yeah, and we don't have a ton of data because we've also, there's some selection bias that we tend to shy away from a lot of those guys in the draft. We certainly don't take them high. Historically, there have been a few. Nick Adenhart was uh, not a high round pick, but he was paid like a first rounder. And obviously, he was was working out when he was killed in a car accident. Um, Fulton remains to be seen. Giolito's was – he had Tommy John surgery almost immediately after signing. So I think it's fair to at least consider him in a similar bucket. And he was, I think, still actually 17 when he had the surgery and obviously he's worked out well, but we don't have a lot of them to use as the basis for making that judgment. Maybe a lot of them are blowing out again a second time and they're just never heard from again. Um, But often we've, there's been a real disdain for those players when it comes to the draft room of at least very much a, let's let this go to guy, go to college and see what happens. I think a lot of it is just the simpler we'd rather wait and see it. Does he blow out again before he's 21, right? Well, he's already gotten hurt once. Well, let him go to college. And if he lasts there, if he's still healthy three years later, okay, then fine. Then we're we're more comfortable with the risk. He's finished growing. Uh, You know, there still can be some, you can still add some velocity, still add some muscle. But this is basically, physically, this is more or less what he's going to look like. He's not getting any taller. You're not expecting the more significant changes. And there does, there's at least some evidence that, Right. There's this period between 18 and 21, which went, you know, why we always go after college coaches who overuse these pitchers, where they are probably at a bit more risk for suffering a significant arm injury if they're not used carefully or if they're not limiting their usage. And I think a lot of it is teams just saying, you already broke once. Let's just let you get through these three years in college. And if you haven't broken again, great. Then we're interested. Because um, And there's another guy, Noah Samal, in I think he's outside Cincinnati. He's already had it in high school and come back. He's a high school player. But I think he missed, talking out a, a little bit out of the air here, but I think he missed his junior year. And he's come back this year looking very, very good. It'll be interesting to see how the draft, how teams value him. Because I think it's all off this year with most of the best guys are hurt. If you look at the college pitchers, look at the college pitchers in my mock. Look at the ones at the top of my rankings. 
the guys who are healthy don't have anywhere near the ceiling of the guys who got hurt, right? There's not a prelip or a pallet or, I mean, God, you could really dream on a Henry Williams and Reggie Crawford, two other college guys who's more ceiling but pitched less before they got hurt. So we know less on those guys. And I think a lot of teams are just saying, well, I take the hurt guy who's got ceiling or take the healthy guy who's got floor but doesn't really have ceiling. And that's what a lot of those discussions will be like. At that point, do you really want to take a low ceiling college pitcher who's healthy? Even guys who've shown, who've looked good, who've performed all spring, or do you say, screw it, we'd rather go for a chance of a number two starter, even if it's a guy who's currently coming back from the surgery. And I don't know, to me, it's, it's like, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream, right? It's just totally subjective. What is your risk tolerance? And what do you believe your organization maybe can do to help these guys? Or are you just... Do you just, would you rather, are you just somebody who just rather say, I'm going to go for ceiling anywhere I can find it? Yeah, maybe it depends on who you are as an organization, what you do well. If you are able to add velo consistently, you're able to build on on pitch design effectively. Mm-hmm. That's how you decide which path you actually want to go down in this instance. I would even say Reggie Crawford, a kid from UConn, who he's barely pitched because he was more of a position player. He was up to 99 last summer for Team USA. I'd almost value him. Think of him like a high school pitcher, not in terms of risk, but sort of this guy's barely begun to learn how to pitch. If you're a team that says we can do all that stuff you just listed, if you're a team like this, we can do this. We can make you – if you've got the arm, we have the technology. Right? Mm-hmm. He's that guy. Most of these other guys I'm talking about were reasonably developed as overall pitchers with secondaries, mechanics, command, all that other stuff you're looking for. Crawford's a little bit of a different creature in this group uh, where – you could say the sky's the limit, but it's because we just don't know anything. And you, if you're what you just described, a team might say, "We'll take that." It's he's he's raw. He has very little experience, but we believe we can help a player like that more than other clubs can. I want to ask you about ceiling as it pertains to position players. You look at the bottom half of the first round of this mock, and you know you think about where these guys will actually go and. We always like to look back years later and say, oh, if we could redo that draft, this guy who went 23rd would have gone 6th because they yep. took a chance and they were right. I'll be doing that next week with the 2012 draft, actually. So I love those lookbacks. They're they're endlessly fascinating to me, especially now I've been doing this 20 years. I remember you know, what we thought of that. Obviously, I have lots of articles and things I wrote, but I also remember a lot of the players and sometimes – Sometimes I forgot the players too, right? We get the, like Billy Rowell. It's like, Billy Rowell? God, I haven't heard that name in a while. And you think back about how important Billy Rowell seemed. Oh my God, he was a top 10 pick in this draft, right? Everybody's taught. And then you realize just the moment that they flop in Pro Bowl, you just forget them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, Until 10 years later when you do the look back. They they fade very quickly when it doesn't work out. But I, I think, mm-hmm. think of someone like Justin Crawford. I think you mentioned it before. He's, he's Carl yeah. Crawford's son. You've got him projected to go 20th. just looks like the kind of guy, if I see high ceiling in the write-up, that's obviously one potential thing. Or if there's a plus-plus tool, or if there's uh, clearly a guy that's going to play up the middle, this is the type of profile. If you're a team that is picking later in the round, you're excited when your team lands a player like that. Because I think that's the those are the raw ingredients of a player that we one day talk about as someone who should have been drafted earlier. Yes, those guys... If those, I feel like those are the guys who, if they sh- when they show up on the redraft, they either end up. So for folks who haven't seen these, usually I, I, what I typically do is two related articles: the redraft, where I say based on what's happened so far and what I project going forward for these players, because their careers are certainly far from over. How would we redraft these guys today? And 
then the next day I do the misses. All the picks in the first round two didn't work out. And if there's a reason why, I explain why. He got hurt. His swing didn't work. He couldn't hit a slider, etc. Those high ceiling guys, they end up strongly on the first one or they end up on the second one. There's not a lot of in-between, right? If Justin Crawford turns out to be, right, if he gets anywhere close to his ceiling, we're saying he should have been picked in the top 10. Otherwise, he might he, he may very well end up on that misses column because a guy like him could just end up right. He, it's the type who doesn't make the majors. It's the high school player. It's the high school player is a little less advanced as a hitter, but he's got a lot of tools. And he's not raw. He's not crude. I you know I don't use those words around him because it's not like that. But he is less of a quote unquote sure thing than say a lot of the college bats I have being taken in the back half of the first round. Yeah, I mean, I remember Judd Fabian coming up this time last year. You've got him projected to go 28th to Houston. Like, he's the kind of guy that you look at, maybe you say, sure, he's going to make it to the big leagues. Like, that's that part is safe, but there's still a lot of risk in terms of what the role actually looks like, despite the fact that he's a college bat who probably ends up in the first round. Yes, uh, I'm not a Fabian guy. I don't really think he's changed that much as a hitter, I think he's just older, right? He'll, he'll be 22 in August. So he's gone from being one of the youngest college players in the draft last year to on the older side for a college player. And he should be producing a lot more than he is. He's also got tools. He can really play center. He's got real power. So I get it. Somebody wants to take him in the first round. I understand why. I personally wouldn't do it because I just don't think the hit tool um, or the plate discipline, particularly the pitch recognition, are anywhere near where they need to be to take a guy like that in the first round. But then I keep coming back to just the paucity of candidates for the back of the first round. We're, most of those picks in the 20s, my guess is we'll get to some point. I don't know where the actual inflection point is. 20, 21, 22, somewhere in there where suddenly it's going to be like, who? What? Who are these? Right? They took who with that pick? Not that we've never heard of them. But that's – God, I hope that doesn't happen. But it'll be more like you took that guy? Really? And you just got to remember. One, it's – right. they did this all spring. They scouted these guys. The Rays took a guy last spring, Carson Williams. Almost everybody I talked to thought it was a reach. Not 100%, but most guys did. And honestly, with a year of development, too, in their system, the work that they've done with him, he's turned into a better player, and it's making that pick look a lot better. But it's just going to come down to like some very specific team preferences because there's just not there aren't enough clear first-rounders in this draft to say, oh, yeah, we picked 25. I may not have them in the right order, but I know who the names are. There's going to be 10 names going in the first round who I may not have even thought had a chance to go in the first round because it's just that kind of draft. And it, it comes down especially to the what we keep talking about, the lack of college pitching. You can usually, if you wanted to do something that was like the throwing darts equivalent of a mock draft, stuff it with college pitching. Just put a bunch of college pitchers on there. You will probably accidentally get a couple right because teams just... They love to fly flee to the safety of the college pitcher. Well, this year there aren't that many. There's maybe three healthy ones who belong in there. Hughes at Gonzaga had on there. Adam Mazur from Iowa. Maybe Matt Harrington at Campbell or, or uh, Justin Campbell at Oklahoma State. I, I mean, I'm already running out. <laughs> and I don't even know that all those guys go in the first round. So we're, we're headed for it, – it's, it's becoming really interesting as somebody who's now done this, my 16th year covering it in the media, plus I was in the draft room for four years for the Blue Jays. I left right before the draft in 06. I've never seen a draft class like this. It's just, it is unprecedented in my baseball career. And I may have mentioned this before. The last time we had a draft without a pitcher taken in the top 10 picks was 1979. Wow. 
we have a pretty good chance of that happening here. Not 100%, but I'd say maybe 75% chance of that happening. As a little part of me, it's rooting for it to happen just because it's interesting. But like, what does that say about the draft class? And I hope folks who, I'm sure a lot of people are listening, like, I don't care about the draft. Like, I mean, I'm not saying everybody should care about the draft, but this year in particular is kind of interesting because everyone always wants pitching, right? Most fans of most teams are like, we don't have enough pitching. It's true. No one ever has enough pitching. Well, I'm sorry, but this year's draft isn't giving you pitching. And when the pitchers are selected in the first round, it's going to be that much more interesting. Well, what do they think? What did they see that we didn't see? Or what do they believe they can do for that pitcher that other teams didn't? It just makes it even more fascinating because there are so few healthy pitchers with clear cases to go in the first round. So you've been on the road for a little bit. You had another write-up that went up just a couple of days ago at The Athletic. I know you got to check off state number 50. You got to go to Arkansas. You did it. I win. I think you're the only person I, I, I know who's actually made it to all 50. Where's my prize? I thought at the airport there'd be like the governor or something, like a welcome committee. Yeah. Big crowd gathered. I had my Protect Trans Kids shirt on. I was all set for it. It didn't happen. No, nothing. Get the banners down for you. Congratulations, Keith. You did it. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Arkansas was, uh, we were in Northwest Arkansas. And um, it was awesome, though. It was great. Shout out to Onyx Coffee in Bentonville. I think there's one in Fayetteville, too. Uh, they're absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and God, the crowd. That might be the biggest crowd I've ever at, at any college game I've ever attended in person, they hit 11-7 on Friday night. It's great. I think that beats the crowd. I've been to LSU a couple times at the box. I don't remember for sure, but it's pretty close. That Arkansas facility is amazing, too. What a great place to watch a baseball game. I can see. They're also packing it because the team's good, but I can see why. Um, that's a hell of a place to watch a game. And it was a, an absolute sea of red and so loud, especially on – uh, Saturday when they mounted a big comeback before the lightning rolled in, but it was fun. It's a really good atmosphere. I spent a lot of time at college games where there aren't a lot of fans there, and I've had a nice run where two games at Arkansas um, against Vanderbilt, and then the night before we recorded this, I was at Coastal Carolina against Clemson, and Coastal had their highest attendance of the season. They had 3,500 people, and I will say, it was hell on the eyes because Clemson is purple and orange, and Coastal Carolina is teal and teal. It clashes a little bit. Oh, my God. I was like, I got my sunglasses on at 9 p.m. because I can't, right? I just Can we just like turn the contrast down a little bit or something on this? <laughs> That's a lot of like, some sort of pastel explosion. <laughs> One of the players you wrote up in that piece is Vandy Spencer Jones. He's 6'7", mm. and I think that pretty much draws like an Aaron Judge comp automatically. Oh, college, oh, yeah. college bat, 6'7", must be like Aaron Judge. Uh, right fielder who runs and has power. Yeah, it, I mean, I get it. That's a that's a fun place to start because Aaron Judge has turned out to be a great player, and mm-hmm. we would love to have more Aaron Judges in Major League Baseball. For sure. I think this is kind of an interesting thing, though, because you know you pointed out in the piece only five hitters with that height have ever played at least three hundred games in the majors: Frank Howard, Tony Clark, Richie Sexton, Walt Bond, and Judge. Mm-hmm. It's like wow, only sixteen hitters that are that height have ever appeared in the majors at all. Mm-hmm. And I thought like, well, how many six, seven players even play baseball up through the end of high school or into college? It's such a, a rare thing in America because if you're six, seven, you're playing basketball, you're playing football, maybe you're yep. playing baseball too, but most likely the coaches 
who had you for basketball and football have pushed you into a scholarship to go play one of those things instead of sticking with baseball. Absolutely. Right. And he he is judge looks like he should be playing football. Oh, for sure. Jones looks like he should be playing basketball. It's just a slightly different, slightly different body type. Um, He's going to be he is going to be extremely interesting because he's having a pretty good season on the surface, but it's not the season maybe you would have expected. I, there's not it's not huge power and there's a lot of swing and miss and that is that that's the problem with these six seven hitters is that their strike zones are just way too big and obviously they get that gets exploited by pitchers and i do think when we have a six seven ball player we put them on the mound if we can yeah right there's just the expectation you know obviously they have to they have to have the arm strength they have to have the interest but yeah that's where we typically see our super tall guys and in in and in Jones' case, he actually was a pitcher, but he ended up having Tommy John surgery, uh, I think, as a freshman at Vanderbilt. And so he's only a hitter at this point. And I could see someone saying, we're going to roll the dice on him because we think it is a judge-ish combination of skills or of tools, I should say, more tools than skills. I, I get that. I don't think he's a first rounder. And I did think Judge was a first rounder back in his draft class. I thought he was more like a top 20 talent in his draft. And I have Jones more of a second, third round talent because I, I don't think he's got the same eye. Aaron Judge had a really good idea of his personal strike zone and how he could cover away and cover in despite being the size of a mountain. And Jones, I don't think has that. He's still a prospect. But I think he's very different. I included that data on uh, the history of super tall guys in or the lack of them just to point out like this is there's a reason. Right? There's actually a pretty tangible reason. They almost all strike out. Uh, they also almost all strike out at above average rates. And that's the ones who make it. Never mind all the ones who never made it to the majors in the first place. Yeah, I think it just comes down to your risk reward tolerance, though. If he's going to be there in the third round. Okay, I can I can entertain that. You can miss Absolutely. in the third round and, and live to tell the tale. And if it clicks, then he's among the players you talk about later and say, oh, Spencer Jones should have been a first rounder in that draft. Turns out he controlled that strike zone just fine. One thing I haven't thought a lot about, I wonder if this has crossed your mind at all, you know, as automated strike zones inch closer and closer to being a part of our future at the big league level. I think they just started doing it in the PCL yesterday, this week. The days are all kind of mm-hmm. blurred together. Do you think automated strike zones could have a more damaging impact on bigger hitters? Or could it actually be an advantage to have an automated strike zone with a larger hitter? Do you think there's any any give or take in one direction with that? Because I know we've we've thought about this problem more from a, well, pitch framing won't be a thing anymore. And you can put different players behind the plate with an automated strike zone if pitch framing is no longer a thing. You would just need arm strength and you could put a better hitter back there and not worry so much about how different aspects of the game are, are handled. I just wonder if big hitters could possibly become more or even less valuable as a result of what seems like an inevitable change of having automated strike zones. I think it would help them. I guess it always depends on how exactly it's implemented, but I do think it would end up helping them because I think a big part of where those guys struggle, you know, people maybe, I don't know what people think, do people just assume, oh, tall hitters struggle because up down, right? Because you would just have a larger strike zone. That's part of it. But I think just as much as the issue of like covering away and covering in, if you, depending on what your swing looks like, if you are, you know, one of the Aaron Judge's big thing was he'd get to another level and people would pitch him away to try to get him sort of leaning out to cover because he's got those long arms and create length in the swing 
so that you could then come inside. And every time I saw Aaron Judge at three different levels of the minors, and every time he would struggle with that at the start and then make the adjustment, cover away, they would change how they pitched to him, and then he would turn it around and cover inside over the course of it would take him you know i don't know two three hundred at bats or so before he'd get to that point and he but he would eventually get there and i wonder if in fact the um going to the automated strike zone would end up reducing a little bit of that because pitchers were no would no longer be getting stuff you know two three inches off the plate like they had been uh, previously, because I do think that's going to be one of the big shocks of the automated strike zone when we see it in the big leagues is that the um, the the true strike zone is narrower than what pitchers are used to and what umpires typically call. And I do think that's going to be, yeah, I think, I think that's going to be a pretty big adjustment for pitchers ultimately to have to make. Yeah, really curious to see if there are certain players that end up exceeding expectations as a result of that technology arriving at what could be the right time for them. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's move on to some more big league type matters for a bit. Uh, Jared Kelnick has been demoted again. He's back at AAA Tacoma. We got another 30 games of Kelnick at the big league level before they made that decision. Keith, the K rate was up from where it was last year, 37.5%. I was surprised to see him struggle that much, given that we were seeing a little bit of improvement as he was up the second time last year. Where do we go from here with Jared Kelnick? He's hardly the only young player to struggle right now. And I have to wonder, is this just part of the pandemic hangover in player development? The lost 2020 season, taking guys that should have been able to come up and stick and be more consistent and simply it's just wreaking havoc on them. Yeah. Do you think that's a big part of it? He's 22 and doesn't have... What, does he have a full year of experience? Yeah, he's at 123 big league games now, so not even 500 plate appearances I mean, yet. I saw a national writer who should know better declaring the trade a win for the Mets. 
Yeah, they they won uh, taking the the Robinson Cano bill on that one. I mean, got right. Diaz, but I mean, still. Yeah, I mean, they had to pay for right. But the point is, like, the book on Kellenic is far from written at this point. He's going to be back. I still think he's going to be fine. I mean, he is a if you're in that sort of fantasy league, that's a buy low guy. I'm sure the person who's owned him for a while is really sick of waiting. So I would jump on that. Uh, I absolutely believe he's going to be fine. He hit everywhere. I do think he's a really, really intense player. And I think that the failure does kind of wear on him. And that was kind of the story coming out of Seattle last year when they demoted him after he really had a pretty, really awful start his first time up last year. And I think that they're Seattle. I, I believe they know what they're doing here. And I believe that a lot of this is just, hey, take some time, reset yourself. You're still part of the future, but you know, they, they saw things starting to spiral a bit on him and chose to, I, I think, actually kind of get out in front of it by demoting him first. I, I'm i not going to try to defend the performance and say it's actually not that bad. It was bad. He was really just not what we thought was turning the corner, ended up not turning the corner. I'm not worried about him for the worried about him for the long term, and I do completely understand the reasons for the demotion. And I think for the, the better part of the first month of the season, we have these conversations, we look at players that are struggling, and it's really hard to draw any sort of meaningful conclusion from what you see like the 30 games from Kelnick that's about the that's about the earliest I feel like you can make a legitimate decision on demoting a player and it, it kind of checks out to me like yeah it was that bad the K rate was that high the problem is real I think you you have these other teams like Boston's in this situation right now they brought up Jaron Duran last week and quickly sent him back down. I thought this is their move. They're going to go ahead and add Duran, see what happens this time around. They're going to play Jackie Bradley Jr. less. I think in the case of a player like Jaron Duran, he's kind of old. I mean, again, lost a season in the minors because of the pandemic. He's 25 years old. What more are you going to do with Jaron Duran at AAA? Like, the demotion for Kelnick totally makes sense to me, but not having Jaron Duran on the big league roster right now in Boston makes no sense at all. Yeah, I agree. If you're not going to play him every day, he should probably be somewhere else, mm -hmm. like in another organization for his own development. I, I What we saw from Duran in the big leagues last year was pretty concerning, especially given his age, right? And I, all these guys who lost the year to the pandemic, I feel bad for them, right? I, this You can't, there's nothing gets that back. And it's none of their fault that they've just sort of had this thrust upon them, unfortunately. Um but that's where we are. And if you're just trying to talk about players' futures, you've got to be kind of cold mm -hmm. about it and say this is the situation is what it is. Um, and in their case, these these Duran is ex maybe the type of one of the two groups of players who's probably most hurt by it. I think a lot of the guys who would have um, – a lot of guys who would have been making their pro full season debut, even if it was just in what would have been a short season league. I think a lot of those guys got hurt by it. So they end up not playing for real until they're 20, but also the Duran types, slightly older prospects, not old, but older who the clock was already ticking on them. And this is a guy who changed his swing kind of just before the pandemic, a little bit during the pandemic, he was looked like he was primed to make a big move in 2020 Maybe the story of Jaron Duran is different. I'm not. I'm not saying he's done. I don't think you are either. But it's just sort of. It it has to be now, right? Because of his age, he's in this weird situation. Yeah, I just think with 
Bradley struggling to recapture his pre-2021 form. When he went back to Boston, I thought, yeah, maybe they know exactly what they're signing up for. They can fix him as a hitter. Obviously, he's a great defender. I think we're seeing enough to say that as a hitter, he just doesn't have it anymore. And if you have Bradley versus Duran as your decision, see what Duran can give you. Because Duran was only up for 34 games last year. Well, 33 last year, one this year. We're talking about 117 big league plate appearances. Not even close to enough to really make a decision of any kind long term. Mm -hmm. So answer that question in the next two and a half months before you get to the trade deadline. Because if you don't believe he's a big part of your plan, you should trade him as you make this roster better and give him that opportunity to play somewhere else. Because if you hold him too long, you do the up and down thing for another year, you're crushing his value. You're not going to get anything back in a trade. He's going to be just one of those guys that falls off a rod. I mean, this is happening with the Yankees and Miguel Andujar. I know Andujar has some legitimate defensive problems. I would love to see what he would do if he got a chance to just hit every day somewhere because he showed us a few years ago he seems more than capable of handling big league pitching. Um, At the other end of the scale, Royce Lewis came up. Carlos Correa was on the IL. And I think the writing was on the wall when he first got promoted. There was no guarantee that he was up for good, even if he played well. He played well. They sent him back down can't be that long before a spot opens up again. I think my question for you with Royce Lewis is, where would you put him defensively if you wanted to fit him in with this Twins team? How how comfortable are you playing him at third base or possibly moving him into the outfield at the big league level? Well, the problem they have with Lewis is when healthy, Byron Buxton may be the best center fielder in baseball. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought Lewis, that's ultimately what his position is most likely to be. Um, he was fine at shortstop. What did he have? I played a couple of games, right? It's 40. I don't actually have a stats page in front of me, but it happens to have, not have his games played. It just, I'm on Spaceball Savant right here, 40 PA. So he didn't play, he just did not get that much of an opportunity. He certainly didn't look out of place at shortstop. Keep playing him there. Hey, maybe he's better too, right? We haven't seen Royce Lewis play defense in two years. Mm-hmm. So, God, more than two years. He was pretty bad at shortstop in 2019, in addition to having a lot of swing trouble. Well, they've calmed all that swing stuff down too, right? His He is not doing the high leg kick. The hitch seems to be gone. Just watching him in the big leagues was like, okay, this is good job, twins. You got all that ridiculous stuff that he did on his own. It's all gone. And this is much more the hitter that they drafted in whatever year that was, 17? Uh, 17 when he was the first overall pick. He looks like that guy again. Hey, Maybe the shortstop's better too. Maybe the defense is better. You know, he was always, he never lacked the speed or the athleticism. It was the things like the footwork, the timing, some of the instincts weren't there. But probably at this point, I would roll him out there at shortstop. And if by the end of the year, looks like it's not working, you reassess. But it's the place he fits the best, I think, for them. And it, God, if he really can stay there, it, it would be really interesting after. A couple of years of injuries, poor performance, major swing problems. For him to turn around and be an actual shortstop who can hit and run, it would it would be a hell of a story, and it would actually go along. I don't think anyone's sitting around saying, "Oh, I can't believe we took him for." No one questioned it at the time, but it would go a long way to justifying the pick, too. Yeah, it really would. And I mean, in this case, could you could you believe Carlos Correa at third base for a bit? If you think Lewis is just ready, do you just move Correa over and? Let Gio Urshela be a bench guy. I, that, that doesn't seem like that much of a problem to me. I think you could actually get away with it. 
No, I think it'd be good. I think the problem you run into, do you want to have Lewis? I guess it really depends on what they, what they, what do they do with Lewis in the minors, right? You don't want to move him off shortstop in the majors. They've toyed with him in the outfield before, but you know, there's no point putting him in center if you have Buxton. I guess it's also, right? Who's hurt? What's the opportunity? Correa is unavailable. You bring him up, put him at shortstop. Oh, Buxton's hurt. I love the guy, but he does get hurt a lot. Okay. Well, maybe then we bring Bucks, we bring, Rice up and have him play some center. I just don't want to have him trying a new position or a mostly new position in the major leagues. So I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I wouldn't move Correa to third just to make room for Lewis. I was, it's not what I was trying to say. I was saying like in the abstract, what's the best position for him? Shortstop is his natural position. You should leave him there if you can. If the opportunity isn't there for that, prep him in AAA to play somewhere else. Yeah, and of course, the unique structure of Carlos Correa's contract enables him to opt out at the end of this season and go back to free agency. So it might not be a long-term problem. It might just be more of a, a 2022 question that the Twins are are actually trying to sort out with Luis Correa and how everybody fits together. Uh, one more young player I want to talk about before we go. MJ Melendez should get an extended look now with the Royals. Salvador Perez landed on the IL. He's got a thumb injury, so it's going to happen. What do you think we're going to see in terms of uh, swing and miss in MJ Melendez's profile initially? Because I think that's where my that's where my short term concerns rest, mostly because of what was happening prior to last season. I mean, you go back to the pre-pandemic, the 2019 season at High A, MJ Melendez had a 39.4 percent K rate at High A, and it's really hard for me to completely dismiss that. Thinking about how well he'll adapt to top level pitching. So I want to point out too, Salvador Perez stunk this year. He had a 240 on base, right? Strange. Was, oh my God, you can't, you can't. What do you mean Melendez has to catch? What are you saying? Perez's season last year was such an extreme outlier. We knew he was going to regress. I don't think he's going to be useless. A guy with a 240 OBP is basically useless. I don't think he's that. But this idea that Salvador Perez had suddenly turned into some kind of perennial MVP candidate, I just wasn't buying it. I'm still not buying it. I still think Melendez is their catcher of the future, and they should be building towards that and figuring out, okay, what do we do? What's the transition plan, and how do we move Perez? If you think Perez is that valuable, fine. You can DH him for a bit, but he is not. I don't believe he's the long-term catcher because I think the on-base skills are what they always were. Um, in Melendez's case, you know what gives me a lot of heart is that we've got now a year plus of data showing that this change is real, mm-hmm. right? He struck out way less in double A last year. He struck out less in triple A, even at a start this year where he was not hitting for average in triple A, but he was still putting the bat on the ball plenty. And then he comes up to the big leagues and it's only 34 at bats or 34 plate appearances, but he only struck out eight times, right? We've seen plenty of guys come up to the big leagues and it's 20 plate appearances and it's 11 punch outs. He wasn't doing that. And he really did make a very significant change in his plan at the plate. And Alex Zumwalt, who is now on the major league coaching staff after they fired, not that Terry Bradshaw, <laughs> Zumwalt's the guy, everyone, you talk to those Royals people about the system-wide change in plate discipline where they increase their walks drawn by their minor leaguers by something like 34%, I think from 2019 to 2021, full season to full season. And they all credit Zumwalt with his work on changing the way that hitters in the system approached at bats, and Melendez is one of them. Melendez is one of the, was one of the most cl- the clearest beneficiaries. He, you know, he went from 165 strikeouts and 419 plate appearances in 2019 
115 strikeouts, so down 50 in 531 plate appearances. So over 100 more times to the plate, struck out 50 times less often. Against That's better pitching, too. Bonkers yeah. against better pitching and got promoted in the middle of the latter season. That's bonkers. That's amazing. I mean, these are the guys we we should be super excited about, mm-hmm. right? Obviously, plenty of guys are just uber talented and will always, you know, can just coast on that talent forever. But the guys who work, who put in that effort to change their games, to get the most out of their abilities, I don't know. I sort of find myself rooting for those guys. In the case of like Melendez and Nick Prado too, who did it last year also. Another guy, Prado looked like, I mean, if you'd asked me privately at the end of 2018, I didn't write this, but it was like, that guy's going to get released at some point. And then he he changed his swing and changed his approach and also came back a much different player. And he got off to a rough start this year, but he's been better lately for Omaha. And I'm hoping that that'll turn around. It's There's less urgency to get him to the big leagues, I think, at this point. There'll be a spot for him when he's ready. But I think what he did and what Melendez did, it's it's real, at least in terms of their improvement, improved contact rates. Yeah, if, if Melendez is carrying that over and then you have Carlos Santana struggling when Salvador Perez comes back, you could see this maybe being the end of Carlos Santana's time in Kansas City because then you can much more easily just have Melendez and Sal Perez in the lineup together. I think, just rotate them, yeah. right? That's that's what I would do with those guys. It's just, ro- right? It's make sure, you know what, Salvador Perez is, he's not old, old, the catcher old. He's got a ton of mileage on him. So it's, have him catch halftime and say, your job, you know, we, you've got a contract, so you're getting paid. But what we want you to do is help train Melendez because Melendez is going to be here long after Perez is gone and say, we want you to help work with him and we're just going to have you guys split the catching duties with an eye towards keeping everyone healthy also. Right. Fresh legs for Sal Perez at this stage of his career gives him a much better chance of holding most of the power we saw last year, even sure. if even if he's a 240, 290, 480 slash line guy for the next few years. If he's doing that with 30 home run power, okay, you can, you can live with that, especially if he's helping your young catcher become a better catcher too, if he has that sort of almost a player coach sort of role. And it does seem kind of realistic, I think, in this particular instance. We have to go. Uh, before we go, I should let you know you can get a subscription to The Athletic for $1 a month for the first six months. Theathletic.com slash baseball show will get you that deal. You can find Keith on Twitter at Keith Law. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Friday. 